the last time I was up here, I, I jokingly said I preached through a sermon series by going through Philemon, which is only just one chapter. But now I transition from a short book to what I hope to do is go through a series on the Psalms. I won't be going through all 150, but what I hope to do in the coming year, as the Lord gives opportunity for me to preach, that I can highlight some of the various different kinds of Psalms, whether it's a Psalm of praise or a Psalm of lament or a messianic or a royal Psalm. And the purpose is twofold. One is to see where we can find the gospel in the various different Psalms, but also to help us to read and approach and to understand these various different kinds of Psalms and to know how to read them and to be ministered by the Word of God in our various seasons of life. And I'll start off this morning by going through a psalm of praise by looking at Psalm 95. And the beginning of the psalm is like every other psalm of praise. It has a threefold structure where it opens with a, a call to worship. And then it transitions into the reason why we ought to praise God. The reasons for why we ought to praise God. And then from there, in light of that, moving to a further and revised call to worship. But what's different about this psalm is that it leaves or ends with a little twist. It leaves us with a caution. And we'll see that here in a moment. And what I'll do is to look at Psalm 95 more clearly, I want to highlight three different things that will help us structure and orient us to read this ancient text and how it applies to us and also how we can leave here with the future expectation. I don't know if this is his way of interpreting the Psalms, but I recently heard Alistair Begg in one of his sermons help us to see if we, when we read the Psalm, we look first for the historical context. First at the historical context of the original listeners or readers. Then look at the present application, which is for us today. And then in light of that, what expectation can we have looking into the future? Some commentators agree that this psalm was most likely read as a liturgy. And I'll highlight it in the sermon. Most likely a liturgy as the worshipers or the ancient Israelites would come before the temple. And if you know, the temple is constructed in such a way where in the middle there is the temple, the holy place where God dwells, where the presence of God is the most rich and most present. And it also includes the inner court and the outer court. And a psalm like this will be read as they progress through the temple and as they approach the throne of God and how they are called to worship him. And as Galen prayed in his, uh, or mentioned in his prayer, how we ought to know more about God, the very God that we are approaching. And then in light of that, how we have a more refreshed call, a different, a more attuned posture before our God. So as we read the psalm together, let us keep in mind that structure. Psalm 95, and this is the word of God. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. 
Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and our God, we come before you once again to receive grace, to receive the grace from the written and spoken word as it highlights, Lord, the living word who is Christ. I pray, Lord, that you may soften our hearts, that though we may have come to many services and had in many a time given you praise, even now we ask for your help that you may soften our hearts so that we may not harden them, that we may not simply hear words, but hear words that transform lives. May we leave this place transformed by your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. It's been nine months, close to nine months since our family came here to Overland Park and in Kansas to be part of this church, which has been a while in a good way. But before coming to Redeemer, Hopefully for, you know, um, as we were in the interview process, hoping for a long-term call, I remember looking at YouTube to watch one of Redeemer's services. And what was so peculiar to me was that though I could hear the worship service starting, there was no one in the front to be found. At first, I thought that it was one of those, you know, where the audio and the video aren't syncing. Because I could hear Tony's voice, but no one was in the front. But quickly I understood just from the form of worship that we have here in in this church that I knew both the leadership and the congregation revered God, that they understood the presence that they came before when they came to worship together. It was one of the many things that drew us to this church. You know, I'm not used to the robe wearing and the hymns although it's kind of growing on me now. It is such a beautiful thing to know what God we come before and to know how we can have a proper posture before him. Many churches in the modern time have different forms of worship. Some of them more loose. Some of them maybe sing different kind of hymns. Maybe the decor is different. And we may be able to argue till the, ta- to, till the cows come home, what is a right way to worship God? And everyone may be able to defend their own way, but I'm pretty sure we can come quicker to an agreement to what a wrong way to come before God is. You see, it's not a matter of 
how loud we sing. It's not a matter of how we sit. It's not a matter of our background. It's not a matter of if we pray out loud. But it's the posture of worship. After recognizing and understanding who God is, and anything beyond that would be a wrong way to worship. In our psalm this morning, we begin with a call to worship. A call to worship by singing, by shouting, coming before God with thanksgiving and praise. And as I had mentioned, it's not necessarily the manner in which we do it, but it is our heart posture. As a matter of fact, the shouting that we see here in verses 1, making a joyful noise, and later on it says, making a joyful noise again in, at the end of verse 2. The more specific verb there is to shout. And the type of shouting that is, that, that we see here, is actually seen in other parts of the Old Testament. It's the same shouting that we see before the walls of Jericho. It's the same shouting that the people of God will have when God will be victorious over Babylon. It's the same shouting that the people had when Saul was anointed king. And it's also the same shouting that the Israelites had when the Ark of the Covenant was returned back to camp. In fact, in that narrative, it says the shouting was so loud that the earth shook. Now, it would be a little out of context for us to shout when we come before our God, when we worship together. But it's not necessarily the volume. And for some of us, it's not necessarily how well you sing that is the right way, but it's the posture. Do we sing? When we sing, where are our minds drifting? Are we looking or are we waiting or are we distracting by what we're going to have for lunch as soon as we leave? Or about the football game that's going to happen later on? Or are we looking at the people to our side and to the front and, and wondering what they're wearing and comparing ourselves? You see, we are able to sing out loud and yet still come before God in a wrong way. You see, it's the same form of worship that the Israelites came. The first word in our English Bible says, oh, come. But in the Hebrew, it actually says to walk. And as a liturgy progresses, they're on the outer courts and they're approaching the temple. From the outset, they are approaching with the temple far away, with the right posture to walk and to come, with thanksgiving and with praise to who? to the rock of their salvation, to the rock of their salvation. It is not wrong for us to come before God with arms wide open, with hands open, hoping to receive something from him. It is not sinful for us to know that he who gave up his son would also give us everything else. But what is right for us in a proper posture of coming before God is not thinking about what we can receive first and foremost, 
but thinking about what we can give to him. You see, if our posture is, a, is simply what we can receive, our hearts can be deceiving to come before God in a wrongful way. You know, if we're joyful, if our, in our week, if we were joyful, right, our asking and what we want to receive from God is going to be different from someone who is suffering. We don't want to come before God in a way that's going to, the way we come before God is going to be determined by our own heart posture or what we are hoping to get. Rather, we need to give God praise simply because he is God. In verse 3, it transitions. The worshipers are approaching the temple. And as they give worship, the reason for worship is highlighted in verse 3 to 5. It says that God, the Lord, is a great God and he is a great king above all gods. You see, ancient Israel would be surrounded by different nations. And many nations that may be economically greater or even their military would be greater than Israel. And I'm sure it would be tempting for Israel to look at those great nations and to question, is Yahweh really great? Is Yahweh really a great king over our nation, let alone other gods? But in this psalm, it is to reassure us that he is. It is to reassure us that the other gods do not exist. And though our hearts and their hearts may be quick to wander, to find comfort, to find meaning, to find many other things, riches of this world, that I'm sure the false gods could give to them, there is only one God that could truly satisfy, and that is Yahweh himself. Indeed, God is a king above all kings. And the reason why he is is spelled out in verses 4 to 5. God is all-powerful and all-knowing. He is all-sustaining. Reminds me of the children's song. He's got the whole world in his hands. Why? Because he created it. You see, just as a potter who creates something, he can lay claims to ownership of it. God is not simply a creator because he is the one who fashioned this world with his hands, with his words, breathing life, creating everything from nothing. That is not only to show that he is all-powerful and all-knowing, but just as a potter who creates the bowl or the plate or the cup, he creates with purpose. You see, when we recognize God to be creator, we're not simply saying he is all-powerful and all-knowing. But that we are also expressing the idea that in creation, especially in human beings, we can see the character of God. That is why we come before our God. That is why he has every reason to be praised. Now, it may be for some of us, or maybe for other people who may not be Christians, when they read a verse like this and they say, it says that God is the king above other gods. Are the Christians recognizing that there are other gods, but God is like Zeus, right? He's the king of them. 
No, not necessarily. What it's highlighting is this. It's highlighting how we are so quick to find God in other things. The late Tim Keller would highlight this idea of idolatry. And he would say things, he would say how we are created to worship. And if we are not worshiping the true God, our hearts will worship something else. I know it's true of me. I know it's true of me that I am tempted to worship the comforts of this life. To worship family. To worship health. I'll even admit there are times where even church itself could be my God. Where I find my ground. My identity. It's the very thing that gives me meaning. It's the very thing that gives me comfort. It's the thing that I fashion all my plans around. It's the thing where everything else makes sense. You see, if it isn't God, if it isn't Yahweh, even if it's a good thing, it is a false God. And it will not only disappoint you, but it will ruin you. The reason why we come before our God and the reason why it is always in a psalm of praise is that we need to reorient ourselves, not simply to say orthodox doctrine and singing beautifully and singing the right hymns, being under good teaching. Anyone could sing a song. But are we recognizing what God we come before? You see, it's only God who can help us make sense of all the joys and the sufferings in this life. You see, it's because God is God, we can look at this world and see the beauties of it. And it's not arbitrary. And it's not by chance. It's purposeful. And because God is God, we can make sense of this life despite our sufferings, despite our sicknesses, despite death, despite even our own mistakes. Because we know through Scripture that this world is not the way that God had intended it. And it's because God is God, we have hope in knowing that God has done something about it. God has brought us Jesus Christ. And in him we see his perfect strength, his perfect wisdom, and his perfect love for us through Jesus and our future orientation and our future expectation is as we suffer, yes, suffer, we suffer momentarily. And we are looking for that glorious day in which all things will be restored. You see, on this side of the cross, we have much reason for praise. The psalm transitions in verse 6 now in light of who God is, to a refined call to worship. By now, we will probably read as they are coming to worship and bowing down and kneeling before God. They are most likely right there in the inner courts, seeing the temple itself. One commentator notes how as the service progresses with elevated and upward motion to God, the worshipers physically lower themselves. They are kneeling. They are prostrate. 
I was debating whether or not this would be a great illustration, but I think this is the best. I'm told that dogs don't like to be on their backs. It's the most vulnerable position for a dog. And yet the times that I've seen dogs on their backs, wagging their tails, is when their owner is on top of them. Willingly making themselves vulnerable, willingly humbling themselves, willingly recognizing their position before their owner, not out of fear, but out of confidence. You see, the call for us is this, that we kneel and bow down before our God and put ourselves in a lowly posture. But we do so not in fear, but as Hebrews 10 says, with confidence. How can we come before God in confidence? How can we come before our creator knowing that we fall short to his glory? In my outline, I even wrote the delight that we receive from our praise. What delight do we receive from our praise? It's a subtle word, but it's there. In verses 6, it says at the end, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. That small word, our. You see, God is the king above all gods but he is our God. He is the creator of all things, but he is our creator. I think Song of Solomon's captures this truth the best. In chapter 6, the other women, the other versions, are calling to the bride. And in verses 1 it says, Where has your beloved gone, O most beautiful among women? Where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? And her response to to them is this. My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to graze in the gardens and to gather lilies. And here she affirms. Here is where she finds her comfort. Here is where she finds her delight. When she says to them in confidence, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Brothers and sisters, we are God's. We can lay claim to say that I am my beloved's, and he is mine. That is the comfort and that is the delight that we come every time we come before him. To know that we have no business to come here. That he has every right not to listen to us. And yet because of Jesus Christ and his precious blood, we can come in confidence. Now the twist. At the end of verse 7, there's a twist in this psalm that may not be found in a lot of psalms of praise. The voice itself changes from a priest who will be conducting a liturgy to a prophet who speaks on behalf of God, and even the the third person changes to the first person. 
And it gives us a warning. It gives us a word of caution where it says, do not harden your hearts as the forefathers did in the wilderness. Now the context we see is in the wilderness, the Israelites were saved from their bondage of slavery. And it only took them two chapters to complain, to doubt God, to question whether or not he was good. A couple weeks ago, one of our congregants, her name, our congregants, Teresa, sent me a podcast called Cold Case Christianity. And there was an interview going on um, with an apologist, and he was trying to make sense of where our church was, trying to get a pulse of where our young people are today in church. And what was so interesting to me was that he said, our young people are not struggling with whether or not God exists. So in the church, our young people are not struggling with whether or not God exists. What they're struggling with is whether or not God is good. And I think this gets at the heart of the warning of this psalm. You see, the Israelites, they knew God existed. They saw his wonderful works of salvation. They saw what he did in parting the Red Sea. They saw the manna and the quail be given and even the water come out of the rock. But the discrepancy that we see with them and also what we see in the psalm is this. If you could turn with me to verse verse 9. There at the end it says, When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Then he continues, for 40 years I have loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their hearts. And they have not known my ways. It is one thing to see God. It is one thing to confess the mighty work that he has done in delivering his people. It is one thing to be a witness, an ambassador. It is one thing to confess and give praise to that God with our lips. It is a completely different thing to know his ways. Is God good? Do we praise God simply because he is real, but also because he is good? Our family went on vacation this past week, and we had a great vacation. Yesterday, we flew back in from out of the country, and the morning of, I was at the hotel room looking for my keys. Both had my home keys and my uh, car keys, and I couldn't find it. And I was just trying to scramble, calling people, calling some friends, try to figure out what I could do. But there was no way I could get to my house or my car. I got on the airplane, stressing out, thinking about what I'm going to do. We're we're scheduled to arrive around 5 o'clock. And I knew that as soon as I landed, the stress was going to rise again. And not only that, the plane was delayed. So I finally touched down and we're looking for our keys. And I still didn't find it. The story didn't end. It didn't end well. 
It definitely didn't end the way that I thought it would, or at least what I would hope it would. Four hours later, we were still stranded, and one of our dear brothers from the church helped us out. But even still, we got home late. By this time, Alicia was hungry and cranky, and we didn't know this at first, but Jess was under the weather. I was trying to be in my right headspace coming to worship service this morning to preach. And throughout the whole day, this psalm was weighing heavy on my heart. And this psalm was asking me, through all the hectic mess that we went through yesterday, it was asking me, John, is God still good? And I tell you, it was hard. I tell you, it was so hard to see God's goodness It was so hard to confess with shouting that my God is good. I'm sure you've experienced other hardships in your life. Much worse than what I experienced yesterday. And I'm sure in moments like that, it's so hard to confess and to see the very God that we come here on Sunday morning to say is good that sometimes it's very difficult to leave here and to say, this is the same God, and he is good. It is so hard to say God is good when things are going bad. In fact, it's even hard to say God is good when things are going well. But the encouragement of the psalm, even with the twist, is to say, do not harden your hearts today. Even today, do not be like the Israelites who only confess what they know and what they see, but to taste it, to taste that God is good. Not only here in this worship service, not only here in this space, but come Monday morning when the kids are getting ready for school. Come Monday morning when you're stuck in traffic to work. The encouragement is to say that that same God is good to me today. Brothers and sisters, as the psalm ends, find rest in him. Find rest in our God. Find rest in knowing that he loves you And despite your sin, despite your unfaithfulness, despite your wanderings, God remains God. Do not be tempted and may your heart not wander to recognize that he is our God, he is our Savior, and he is the one who gives us rest. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are so much more glorious than all the singing could amount to. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful and unchanging despite our own postures when we come before you. We stand firm on that foundation to know that you are the creator and in your hands you have everything and all things, in fact, are yours. Help us to leave this place, Lord not to live a dualistic lifestyle, to only sing worship and praise here, 
but give us strength, give us clarity, and may your Holy Spirit comfort us as we give worship to you even in our homes. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.